this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode 10 of the 2019 R&D season, Just Science interviews Dr. Christopher Earhart, professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, about a method for determining tissue type, age of evidence, and the contributors from biological mixtures using cellular autofluorescence signatures. Buccal, vaginal, epidermal, and blood cells all have unique intrinsic properties. However, when they are combined, it can be difficult to discern what components are actually in the mixture. Using image flow cytometry, Dr. Earhart has found a way to differentiate between cell types, estimate cellular age, and identify contributors in the sample. Listen in as he discusses how autofluorescence data and cellular properties are being used to analyze samples without destroying the evidence in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice, operated by RTI International. Today, we're actually going to be continuing our series of podcasts looking at presenters at the recent American Academy of Forensic Science NIJ Research and Development Symposium. Our guest today is Dr. Christopher Earhart who has a PhD from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and is now at Virginia Commonwealth University as an associate professor in the forensic science department. And he started off in earth and environmental sciences. He did a postdoc at the FBI lab research unit in Quantico and as the national security director at CNNL, the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory in Richland, Washington. And his uh, research group at VCU studies biochemistry, optical properties, genetics, trace biological samples, and front-end methods for resolving cell mixtures. So how does somebody who was interested in the earth and environmental sciences wind up with a postdoc at the FBI? <laughs> the obvious question. You must have been asked that before. Yeah, no, it was definitely an unusual route and something that I did not expect, to be perfectly honest. Um, what was really interesting, so I finished my PhD in 2007, and I was looking at uh, different postdocs. Again, I, my PhD is mostly in uh, environmental science and environmental microbiology, where I was uh, looking at mineral precipitation patterns and also interactions with microbes. And what was kind of interesting in 2007, the FBI was still conducting their the Amerithrax investigation, where they were trying to figure out and refine signatures for the attribution of virulent anthracis spores that were used in that biocrime in 2001. And one of their areas of, of research is that they were trying to understand chemical signatures and also mineral precipitation patterns that happen on uh, spore or bacterial cell surfaces. Although I wasn't doing forensics and PhD, that was what my PhD was on, was mineral textures and, and bacterial surfaces. So I was able to make a really interesting transition from natural science to uh, actually microbial forensics, um, where I did just basic research as a civilian contractor with the FBI's research unit. 
and that got me really into forensics. I learned so much there, not just about microbial forensics, but about forensic profiling in general, the different areas of the lab, the different topics. And uh, I've never looked back. I thought it was so interesting and, and exciting to be there at that time, and that um, I just I stayed in it. Well, that's great. I actually have great respect for the Earth Sciences. One of the uh, folks on my thesis uh, defense was David Bedlin from the Earth Sciences Department at Hopkins, who uh, oh, I got okay. to know because they had they had the best transmission electron microscope on campus, and so I had uh, uh. <laughs> wanted <laughs> there to use their instrument. And so, uh, very big fan of the Earth Sciences. Uh, yeah, cool. <laughs> So now you're at VCU, and you've actually done a very interesting kind of thing, which is to try to solve this issue of not only dealing with biological mixtures, but also understanding the source of biological mixtures with respect to tissue type. So perhaps you could kind of lay out kind of your overall strategy for how you're attacking that problem. I've always been fascinated, you know, early on, I would say, you know, my first postdoc and early on here at BCU, I was focused mostly on microbial phenotypes. So basically size, shape, again, fluorescence properties of bacteria. And I started getting really interested in what phenotypes, you know, morphology, structure, basically any kind of aspect of the cell that is non-genetic and what that can tell us about the cell itself. And I thought it was really interesting in terms of learning about early on in my postdoc, learning about um, human DNA and some of the challenges and the issues of mixtures and determining source tissue for biological evidence. And uh, the fact that there wasn't a lot of research on looking at the cells themselves. A lot of the focus was on, obviously, for very good reasons, you know, DNA and genetic signatures and a little bit of other types of nucleotide molecules as well. But I got really fascinated by this idea of, you know, these determining cell type or source tissue is a really important forensic question. And what kind of information are we missing from biological evidence by just going after the DNA or just going after uh, using things like microchemical tests? Is there information that we're overlooking? We know that, you know, cells coming from different parts of the body, they should look different. You know, they have different sizes, they have different morphology, their chemistry should be very different. And so what are some different strategies that we might, that are easy, that are fast, that are non-destructive, that can complement traditional DNA analysis and provide context or provide more information than what you can get from a normal DNA workflow? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you decided that you really focused in on is fluorescence profiles. And you use this term autofluorescence, which is really basically looking at the full spectrum of, of fluorescence that is presented by a cell. Or let's get that term down first, so I guess so that our audience can be on the same page with this. So uh, autofluorescence, you know, can be fluorescence signal or uh, fluorescence from any intrinsic property of the cell, usually compounds within the cell, and it can be a range of wavelengths. And so from our early studies of looking at how autofluorescence might differ between cell types or between individual contributors, we're looking at a range of wavelengths. So we're doing very broad surveys, basically trying to capture as much information as possible. When we actually kind of narrow down and look at specific signatures for cell types, for instance, like distinguishing buccal cells from skin cells, the autofluorescence tends to be uh, concentrated along very specific regions of the wavelength corresponding to particular molecules or sets of molecules. So while we are surveying broad ranges of excitation wavelengths and emission wavelengths or different spectral properties, by now we've kind of zeroed in on on specific regions that tend to be the most informative. So I'm used to the idea that uh, like flavonoids are fluorescent and those are, most cells have tons of, of, of those. Is that what you're looking at or are there other chemicals that give a more distinctive signature? 
Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So, you know, right now we can use uh, the tricky thing with narrowing down the fluorescence is that, you know, it's a function of the excitation wavelength and then the emission. And a lot of times the techniques we're doing, a lot of the flow cytometry techniques, they're very fast and to get the most information as possible, basically we use multiple excitation lasers and also multiple detector channels. And so for the overall signature, a lot of times we're basically collecting all of that information at once. But it's true that we've started to actually narrow down to try to figure out exactly what compounds or assemblage of compounds are driving the very specific differences, whether it's between different cell types or between individuals or between uh, cells of different ages. And so uh, we're looking at, you know, flavins, we're looking at porphyrins, even tryptophan, you know, at certain wavelengths, if there's a really tryptophan-rich molecule and, it's, and those tryptophans are exposed, that can cause autofluorescence. There's, you know, some data out there that different types of porphyrins or even um, keratins or cytokeratins can autofluoresce under the right conditions, but that's, that's an active area of research right now for our lab. And that stuff is throughout the cell, or is it concentrated on the cell surface? Because it obviously also changes your ability to be able to detect it on a uh, consistent basis. Yeah, exactly. And it depends on the cell type, you know, in terms of when we're looking at touch epidermal cells. Those are not biochemically complex. There's actually very little going on in those. Whereas like a buccal cell is fresher, and so a lot of, most of the time we can still see a nucleus. It has all of its cellular machinery. So it's going to have a much more complex and diverse autofluorescent signature. Same thing with other um, epithelial cell types that are not touch samples. So yeah, it, it, really, it really depends on the cell type and the specific signature we're analyzing. Okay. So I have to say that uh, in, in looking into this uh, before the podcast and, and talking to a couple of our folks here, they said, well, uh, you know, Chris Earhart was not the first person to think of this, but he was the first person to figure it out because uh, it's actually a lot more difficult <laughs> than <laughs> very elegant research has made it, it made it seem because it's difficult to really tell the difference between different kinds of of cells if you don't kind of know what, what to look for in your abstract. You actually talk about buccal, you talk about epidermal, you talk about blood. I think I remember seeing something about a difference between different kinds of epithelial cells, whether they are from uh, vaginal or, or otherwise. Can you tell me a little bit about like the cell types in general, and before we, and then, we'll, then we'll get into kind of what you're looking at, what kind, kind of cell types that you have examined and that you feel at least are promising from being able to be differentiated? Right now, most of our research is focused on um, four cell types. So blood, and then what I call touch epidermal cells. So basically epidermal cells sloughed through touch or contact, and then buccal or saliva cells from the inside of the cheek or from the mouth, and then also uh, vaginal cells. And so those blood cells are very easy to differentiate from the other two because, you know, it, as you said, you know, we've known this is not novel, that blood cells look different. <laughs> so those are very easy to yeah. differentiate, both in terms of morphology and size and also autofluorescence. The three epithelial cell types, um, the touch epidermal, the buccal, and the vaginal, they're a little bit trickier to differentiate, especially when you start looking at aged and degraded samples. But that was work that we recently published last year of, of trying to tweeze those signatures out and figure out specific aspects of the morphology and the autofluorescence that really uh, does the best job of discriminating those three cell types. So you're not looking at sperm cells? Uh, not yet. We have uh, some preliminary data on sperm cells, but because they are order of magnitude smaller, if that's fair to say, it requires slightly different optical settings for the rapid um, analysis using at least low cytometry or microscopic approach, but that's something that uh, that's on the horizon for us. Okay. 
So take us a step through kind of from an instrumental perspective, you know, exactly which kinds of excitations are you, excitation wavelengths are you looking at and how are you, are you actually looking at this under microscopy so that you can actually use this uh, potentially as a sample prep method or just talk us through the kind of the method that you're using. So we've actually done a couple um, over the last four or five years. We've looked at different instrumentation platforms for detecting these signatures. So the morphology and the autofluorescence signatures are there no matter what. And we've, in the, our first iteration back in 2014, 2015, we were looking at flow cytometry uh, just straightforward. So looking at um, a series of excitation lasers and then using different um, detector channels to measure the intensity and the wavelength of scattered light off of the surface. Using that, we can also get a little bit about morphology. So we can use like, um, we can get rough ideas of size and also intracellular complexity using different scattering ratios from the flow cytometer but there's no microscopic images in our first iteration. And we were getting a lot of information from that. Then about two years yeah. ago, we started experimenting with a version of flow cytometry called imaging flow cytometry. So it's exactly the same as flow cytometry in that the fluorescence data is there, the rough ideas of size and also a little bit of shape, but that in addition to that data stream, it's also taking a picture of every single cell in the sample and just regular in both fluorescence channels and also uh, basically bright field imaging, which is what you would get in a normal microscope image. But it's doing it ultra fast. So literally in a matter of minutes, you have individual pictures of every single cell in your sample. You know, it makes sense that from that data set, once we have the picture, well, we can extract much more information from that picture. We can actually have a pretty accurate sense of the area of the aspect ratio and then overlay that with the fluorescence information. It's a much richer picture of the uh, tissue origin or other sort of forensic context that may have contributed to the properties of that cell population. So I guess I'm a little naive in the sense that I just figured that most age Prince examples, the cells are not that intact, that they've been lysed by ultraviolet light or by handling or anything of that nature. Have you looked at that issue? Is this a practical tool for most forensic stains? Yeah, so in our initial pilot study of the um, epithelial cell differentiation, so looking at, you know, touch epidermal, vaginal, and buccal cells, we analyze samples ranging from one day old to more than a year old. And from, you know, I think we were up to 60 contributors and a couple hundred cell populations. And, you know, even when we were looking at cell samples that were more than a year old, even buccal cells or even vaginal cells, we were still seeing nuclei. We were definitely still seeing, you know, we were still seeing well-defined cells. Now, obviously, there's a spectrum, and as things degrade, you may see some damage, but there's still a significant number of cells that are intact that still have fluorescence signatures even after that time. Now, some of that is obviously going to depend on the deposition conditions and how we're drying them and how we're aging them. Like, I, I think the results would be different if we literally left them outside and changing humidity and temperature and all of that stuff. Like, if we really beat them up, I could definitely see a situation where there wouldn't be many cells to analyze. But in terms of you know, if it's dried and it's aged and we beat them up a little, you know, we definitely did degrade them a little bit or, or challenge them in some significant ways. A lot of the signatures, we were still able to extract differences that were robust between cell types that didn't seem to um, be affected by the sample age. So in your uh, paper, you mentioned the fact that you demonstrated that you can 
differentiate uh, epidermal skin cells from vaginal and buccal cells with mm-hmm. a classification accuracy of 94%, which is quite good. Yeah. And those uh, cell types from blood cells with an accuracy of 97%. Is that with the imaging flow cytometry? So it's based on the fluorescent signature, but also some of these other parameters that you can take a look at. What are those numbers based on? Yes, correct. So that's the, um, the combination, the ultra-fast microscopic imaging, and then overlaid with the fluorescence data, that those together, we have about maybe 150 variables that we use for the discrimination, for the classification. Um, but that's the primary data set for that paper. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a lot of variables. Am I interpreting this correctly, too? And that is that you are able to distinguish the epidermal from both vaginal and buccal quite well, but you're, it's not quite as easy to distinguish vaginal from buccal cells. Is that correct? Yes, I, that's correct. Getting, okay. And then, of course, blood is a very different kind of cell type, too. So those are even better, right, for distinguishing blood from these other three cell types yes. uh, all combined. How well can you do, I think especially one would be curious about the distinguishing of, of vaginal cells from other cells. So let's just take the hard one, the hardest one you for vaginal versus buccal. How, how well can those be distinguished? It's definitely more challenging, you know, simply because the source tissue is more similar than, say, your skin and, and your mouth. You know, they're both endothelial. Uh, epithelial, you know, they have um, in the very general anatomical sense, they're very similar biochemical functions. And so those are those are a little bit harder to distinguish. Um, but in terms of, you know, we can sort of hit it with a statistical approach. And again, because we have this big data set and we have a, in terms of both the number of variables we're analyzing and then also the number of conditions and the number of donors, we're really kind of able to try to extract more subtle signatures that can differentiate those two with, again, with an accuracy of, you know, I would say we're in the, uh, we're kind of approaching the mid-80s in terms of classification percent, 84, 85% distinguishing those two. But the signatures, either the um, source molecules or the fluorescent signatures are different than what we use to distinguish between the epidermal cells and the other cell types of the blood cells from the epithelial cell types. It has a sort of thinking about an overall almost like a decision tree in terms of if you have a true unknown sample and you just want to analyze it blindly, sort of what's the order of signatures that you apply in order to have the best accuracy of your cell counts in your sample. So that's something that we're refining right now. Yes, that's a lot of variables, 150 variables that you're looking at. Are you, what is the statistical method you're using to kind of tease out that big data and actually uh, come up with a fairly transparent result? You know, you want something that is, reproducible and, and transparent if we're going to be using this forensically. Yeah, exactly. I started um, our initial work with a smaller data set, um, so the first iterations, and the basis of our publication uh, last year was I was using a linear discriminant analysis or discriminant function analysis, so it's a parametric method, and uh, and that worked pretty well for our, our data set at the time and the variables that we were looking at. As we're expanding our data set and as we're expanding the variables and we're actually getting better at extracting more subtle fluorescent signatures, we've been testing other methods as well of looking at more sophisticated database matching and classification systems. Our most recent work was looking at uh, things like algorithms like random forest classifier or support vector machines or, or some other sort of big data algorithms. And, you know, right now we're looking at uh, the support vector machines seem to show the best classification accuracy for a lot of the differentiation signatures that we're looking at. But this is something that we're evaluating right now. And it, and you're right. One thing that we're always keeping in mind is if this is something that's going to be used 
for evidentiary samples and not just sort of probative or screening, we need to think about, you know, like what are the statistics that we're going to use and make sure that it's, you know, explainable and clear and that, like you said, the results are reproducible. So it's definitely, um, it's exciting. I love database matching algorithms. Um, so it's been really fun to think about that. <laughs> Yeah, and some of those techniques, uh, you know, within the, the community of, of uh, statisticians who work in forensic science, some of them have had some criticisms associated with them because they don't naturally produce confidence intervals that are stable. Uh, there can be some there can be some oddities with respect to those approaches. So it's, yes. it's it can be difficult to find one that's appropriate for this community. Yeah, exactly, and it and it's. And it's people are constantly sort of weighing in on that. It's an evolving, it seems my outsider impression is that it's it's constantly evolving even now, like people are having thoughts and that really interesting sort of opinion papers and things out there. So it's it's been really interesting to uh, think about for this data set and this problem. Yeah, we've actually done some podcast work on that very topic and that all those all those controversies. <laughs> but we're not yeah. going to get into that anymore here today. Um, so... So you also extended this in looking at mixtures uh, where you had, I think only, did you have more than two contributors in any of the mixtures? You had two, I know you had two-person mixtures uh, mm -hmm. with different contributor ratios. So tell us about that uh, kind of research and, and, and what you were able to find uh, using uh, samples that, were, uh, that started off as mixtures. So we've looked at a, a few different mixture uh, types. So based on the autofluorescence data and the differences between cell types, you know, some of the uh, lowest hanging fruit that we went after is looking at, you know, the two cell types that just look the most different with morphology and autofluorescence and to see if we could separate those without any probes or with kind of minimal input. And so uh, one of the mixture systems was looking at two-person mixtures of blood and buccal cells. And those were very, very straightforward to, uh, to separate. Blood is very uh, low in autofluorescence, and buccal cells just light up at all across the fluorescence spectrum. So that was actually fairly easy to separate, and we were actually able to get really good enrichment, even in dried samples, up to about two to three days that were dried and aged for about two to three days. We got really good enrichment and single-source profiles from um, each contributor after sorting the cells based on their autofluorescence signature. I guess blood is just too simple a cell. Is that what it boils down to? There's just not enough, enough different kinds of uh, stuff in it? Yeah, so it's simple, and it's also surprisingly circular even after it's dried. So actually we can look at a shape variable, and then also there's not as much compounds you know, in it that would drive the fluorescence, whereas buccal cells are just loaded, and they just light up um, all across the spectrum. So in terms of autofluorescence, it's much, much brighter, much more intense for buccal cells. So it's very easy to separate those just based on that autofluorescence signature from at least blood. And so that was exciting to get that from um, even dried or compromised samples, you know, out to a few days, uh, a few days old. We also looked at um, actually some of the first work. Believe it or not, we started with the most complex sample. So we actually did touch cells first before we ever looked at different mixtures of different cell types. We were doing um, touch samples from multiple contributors. And there also, we actually were able to use autofluorescence, but only within the red region of the spectrum. So somewhere between 650 and 680 nanometers. And we found that not across the board, but in many types of mixture samples, contributor cell populations actually differ in the intensity of their autofluorescence at red wavelengths. And so we're actually able to use that autofluorescence for touch mixtures to um, separate individual contributors, again, with two-person mixtures um, at that point of what we were working on. We also looked at one-cell type mixtures that were composed of just blood. And so there, we actually extended beyond two-person mixtures. So we looked at two, three, four, and five-person mixtures. 
With that, we did a slightly different strategy where we were actually using antibody probes, even in dried samples, but to try and target, um, actually selectively label contributor cell populations and then create from even a five-person mixture, instead of a five-person mixture, create a two-person mixture and a three-person mixture that would be easier to interpret manually versus a five-person mixture, which um, our collaborators tell us they wouldn't even attempt to do in a, a case-working situation. So yeah, we tried all sorts of different mixture systems and using a combination, you know, mostly an autofluorescence for different cell types and also touch mixtures, but then also looking at um, all different types of cell types and contributor combinations, and that's something that we're um, continuing to do even now and work on. Yeah, and you alluded to earlier the fact that you had done some studies looking at the aging of stains uh, showing that you, the cells remain intact to a reasonable degree, but also the fluorescent signatures evolve as they age, which can be used theoretically at least, or are you going to go to the next level to say actually practically? You can actually use those changes to determine the age and deposition of a stain. Yeah, so that's uh, that's one of our active areas right now. And in terms of you know the signatures we see over time are really um, are really interesting. And I think they sort of exactly what we would expect from a blood stain. And that we see very little autofluorescence in the beginning, and then the autofluorescence increases incrementally over the course of several days. And then there are more complex changes as it gets out to like more than a month or several months but that those changes should be dictated by um, kinetic breakdown of what's inside the cell. And uh, basically proteins opening up from being oxidized and tryptophan residues being exposed or porphyrins or flavins even, uh, depending on the cell type. But that based on that progression, we, should, we actually are seeing pretty good evidence that we can discriminate definitely between wide um, time points. I, I guess by that I mean like a sample that's one month old versus one week old. Like those are very drastic differences in autofluorescence. Uh, we struggled a little bit in the early day, in the early part of the project of trying to distinguish. I was, we were maybe shooting too high in that I was trying to distinguish a sample that was two days old versus one day old. And, uh, you know, that's much more complex, interesting statistically, but much more complex. And then, you know, talking to our collaborators at, at caseworking units and stuff, you know, they sort of recentered us and said, yeah, we don't ever have to distinguish between something that's two days old or one day old. It's just, is it one year old or is it last week? Or is it one month old or 10 years right. old? And, uh, that's, you know, it was just, it was a funny uh, realization. As a researcher, not a caseworker, it was like, that was a good centering moment because I was like, oh, yeah, okay, that's good because that's much more straightforward to figure out. <laughs> and you're taking advantage of this uh, idea that blood actually has fairly low fluorescence when it's fresh. And so there's, there's not a whole lot of baseline there. So when, when things right. do change, then you actually, it's actually a big change. So you would not necessarily be able to expect it to be as easy in some of the other cell types. Yeah, definitely not. Um, with saliva, it's, um, we're actually seeing this is the um, area we're working on right now. So it's, you know, right now we're kind of at the first stages, but saliva looks pretty good too. Saliva is hampered by the fact that it's just a much stronger baseline and it's actually more of a decay rather than an increase in autofluorescence over depending on the type of cell population. With touch cells, touch cells are really static just because they don't have much going on in them to begin with. And so we're not seeing much in the way of changes over time with touch cell, with the majority of cells that you find in a touch sample. So you've actually been working with some forensic laboratories on this technique, which is surprising. I mean, so, uh, but flow cytometry, I think, is fairly well known to the forensic science community. I don't know about mm -hmm. imaging flow cytometry. It's probably a little bit more novel for right. forensic science. 
but you you have had some laboratories who've been working with you on the research. Yeah, we've been working closely with uh, our collaborators. So I'm in Richmond, and then the um, Department of Forensic Science in, in downtown Richmond. Uh, we have really great uh, collaborators there, and they're always, um, you know, Dr. Susan Greenspoon is really always interested in new technologies and sort of exploring their use for uh, casework. You know, it, going to conferences and presenting this has really, um, it's been really interesting to meet people at different caseworking labs and at least, at the very uh, least, talk about potential applications and sort of discuss uh, options for either caseworking validation or kind of hearing from caseworking labs about uh, like what you said, okay, we can't do imaging flow cytometry, but here's what we do have. And I really like that challenge of saying, you know, because I'm not bent on a particular technology, I'm interested in the signatures and bringing those signatures to casework. And for imaging flow cytometry, it's a really great way of doing these exploratory surveys and identifying what the best differences are. Those differences can then be ported to any number of platforms that either can be adopted or in labs now. And so working with our collaborators at different caseworking labs has been really helpful for that, for figuring out what is possible, like what is the workflow in these labs and what is the feasible either short to medium term solution that could take advantage of these optical or morphological signatures now or to facilitate or help out DNA caseworking units. So have you actually developed a methodology that you think could be uh, using what you're doing now and transferred into the crime laboratory in the near term, or do you feel like there's still some research work to be done before you could come up with something that is deployable in a, uh, in a crime lab? Yeah, so we're actually doing a, a couple different strategies. One is looking at um, porting these signatures into smaller instruments um, and also, you know, less costly instrumentation that could be adopted by a lab or could be at least be adopted as part of a validation study. Um, I'm really interested if it's an optical signature and a, if a lot of this information can be obtained from a regular microscope image, but it can be done automatically without someone sitting at the microscope. If all of these, uh, we're working on scripts and programs to actually automatically sort of um, recognize the cells and then extract all of these signatures and run it against the database so that someone isn't sitting at a microscope and you know physically finding cells and taking a picture and making the measurements, but making these things automated. And like you said, we're not the first people to do that aspect of it. You know, a lot of people have done really great work looking at automated scripts and cellular analysis through a range of platforms, but it's mostly in the biomedical sciences, and they're going after very, very different questions than what we are. And so it's been fun to use a lot of those primary work as a foundation and try to apply it to forensic caseworking problems and see what we can develop to, uh, to fit into the operational workflow of a DNA unit. So you've been working on an NIJ grant, and let me uh, reiterate for folks, very much encourage them after they listen to the podcast that, to then uh, go and uh, uh, check out the archived version of the presentation that uh, Dr. Earhart gave at the R&D symposium at AAFS, so you can kind of see uh, a little bit more of the technical details of what he's talking about. Are you still in the middle of your NIJ funding, or what are you expecting with respect to where your NIJ project is going to go or where it's going to uh, end at this point? Yeah, so the project that I presented at the meeting um, ended this past summer, I think. So I, it was basically sort of a wrap-up of that entire project. You know, kind of where we're going for this, I see two or three different directions. I see one of them focused exclusively on aging of the evidence and looking at different cell types and really kind of narrowing that down. Another one would definitely be focused on another trajectory would be the cell separation side of looking at, okay, we have these signatures, 
what cell types can you physically isolate on the front end of a DNA workflow. And then, you know, that could be on a research, uh, a little bit research and development, but also sort of validation of actually partnering with a crime lab to really see how this would work under the constraints and the rigors of a, a workflow. And then I see another one of looking at the signatures themselves. I see another trajectory or an independent development of looking at this approach as a screening technique, you know? So like basically, even if there's not separation or independent of separation, if we can say exactly what's in this sample, if we have quantitative counts of the different cell types with or without, you know, potentially with the age of those cell populations, how many cell types are present, how many contributors are present, the age of the evidence. So just DNA caseworking units have an idea about what's in the sample, what's in all of these evidence samples before they actually go through the process of DNA profiling. That would be a completely, I think, potentially a distinct application that we're definitely um, working on right now. Well, yeah, and it would be revolutionary in the sense that, you know, there are people who've looked at this. There are, but you have gone way beyond what anybody else has been able to accomplish thus far. It has been uh, something that has been an issue in a lot of casework and and definitely has a lot of practical value. So I can tell you there are a lot of friends and clients, people who are very grateful for, for your research work. I think I said this towards the beginning, but I love the idea that, you know, like right now, caseworking labs are throwing away all of this information in the cell because they're lysing all of the cells on their first extraction step. And that, you know, we need to like take a pause, take a picture of everything and then do the analysis. And then, you know, without sacrificing your sample, you can get these signatures. And yeah, it was like the last slide of, of that PowerPoint from the symposium. But I just love this idea that we're throwing away information right now. So our guest today has been Dr. Christopher Earhart of Virginia Commonwealth University, an associate professor at the Forensic Science Department, talking about an extremely uh, interesting use of uh, autofluorescence and morphology signatures for the determination of tissue type and the age of evidence, and uh, a really, really interesting set of research that he's done. Thank you, Chris, for uh, being on Just Science. Thank you. I want to encourage everyone who's listening to please tell your friends and colleagues about Just Science. It is a great way to learn about the cutting-edge research that's coming into the crime laboratory, out of the research laboratory. And uh, please also check out all of our other work on uh, www.forensiccoe.org. This episode concludes the 2019 NIJ R&D season. To stay up to date on future seasons, please sign up for the FTCOE newsletter or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.